All right, we're continuing our series in uh, 1 Thessalonians. So if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians. We're calling the series Authentic Church. And so this Authentic Church series in 1 Thessalonians has been challenging us to consider what does a real church look like? If you don't have a Bible, we've placed some under the chairs, and you can grab one of those and turn to page 987. So page 987 in those black Bibles, 1 Thessalonians, will be in chapter 4. We're considering... What happens when God comes in and spiritually transforms a group of people so that they begin to trust and follow Jesus? What happens? What does that look like? This week, we're calling it authentic living. A lot of us want to know, what does it look like to live a good life? Um, What is a life well lived? One of the uh, blessings I have is getting to reflect on that as a pastor at funerals. I probably go to more funerals than most people because I uh, officiate funerals. And it's a great opportunity to reflect on what is, what is a life well lived? One of the most famous movies of all time is called It's a Wonderful Life. Any of you ever seen this movie before? It's a famous Christmas movie. One of the most popular movies of all time. And that's really what the movie is about, is reflecting on what is a life worth living? It starts with a main character wanting to commit suicide because he's come on some really hard times. Um, and his guardian angel intervenes. And just to be clear, I'm not like trying to say this is a movie with great theology, okay? But there's, there's a nice story that takes place here. And the guardian angel intervenes, and what the guardian angel does is he shows him what his life would have been like or what the world would have been like if he had never lived. And shows all the bad things that would have happened if he hadn't been there to show grace to people at pivotal points of his life. And so by the end of the movie, he realizes, wow, God has used me to do good things. He doesn't use the theological terms, right? But I'm going to insert that. I'm going to insert some faith into the movie. He's like, wow, God has used me to make a difference in this world. What would that look like for us to to have a life where God uses us to genuinely make a difference in our community? That's our hope. That's our prayer. And Paul's going to give us a pretty simple formula here in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read just four verses. And so I want to warn you as I move into the sermon, it's only going to be a two-point sermon today. So I'm sorry. I know for some of you, you're like, you're going to want to come talk to me for 20 more minutes afterwards just to get a little more material. We can arrange that if necessary. Um, But we're in chapter 4. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So two points, basically love and work, right? Those are the two points. I'm going to pray for us and ask the Lord to teach us how to live this life. God, help us to hear you in your word. We pray that your spirit would open up our minds and our hearts so that we would hear you speaking to us, that you would change us and shape us by your word, that we would be more like Jesus, that you would give us faith. You'd help us to trust you. Father, we confess that there are many things that draw our hearts away. Make us a people of faith that actually can live a life of love and hard work to be a blessing to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point, these two sections, just kind of two verses and two verses. The first section is that we should love more. Love more. We've seen this theme throughout 1 Thessalonians. Paul keeps saying that they're actually good at caring for one another. 
This is a group of Christians who recognize that God loves them, and because of that, they have been spiritually transformed, and they begin loving each other and loving other people. And so Paul says, once again, you're loving each other. That's awesome, but keep going. We had a little echo of that last week. Keep going. Don't give up on loving one another, but keep going. Keep growing. Keep becoming more like Jesus. Our Savior is one who loved us when we didn't deserve to be loved, so we're going to reflect that by loving others who don't deserve our love. We're going to show that kind of gracious love to other people. So look at verse 9 with me again. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The word taught by God is an interesting Greek compound phrase. It's uh, all together one word. Taught by God is three words in English, but it's just one word. Um, you're God taught. You've been taught by God. And this is talking to how the gospel transforms our hearts and there's this inside-out love that begins to take place if you're a follower of Jesus. And so the way John says it, the Apostle John, in his little letter of 1 John towards the end of the Bible, is he says it more negatively. He says kind of the opposite. If, if you're not loving one another, then you don't know God. And so that's kind of a scary thing I have to lay out there for you because we're in a culture that thinks that if we are just born into a Christian family or if we've, uh, you know, cried at a camp or walked an aisle and taken on the name of Jesus in some superficial way, that we are then belonging to God, that we're in his family. But the scripture actually says, if you don't actually love people, then you don't understand how much God loves you and you're, you're not actually a part of his family. Um, so, I, so I don't say that just to like push you out of the family. I'm actually saying that to say, hey, you're, you're still standing out on the porch. We want to invite you in. We, we want you to come in to the Father's love. He wants you to come in and sit at the table and enjoy all the grace that he has for you in Jesus. And so the gospel is that on our own, we can't do life. We don't know how to live. We can't love. But God and his love for us, while we were still sinners, came to us in Christ. And so he took our sin on the cross. He showed us the resurrection power of Jesus to, to renew our hearts, to flush out all that stuff that was there before to help us to love others. So the gospel story is that God loves you so much that that changed you and changed me from walking this way of just loving myself, and now I've turned around, we call that repentance, and now I'm, now I'm chasing Jesus because I see that he loves me. I'm convinced of the Father's love. Are you convinced of the Father's love for you? Have you come to trust in what God did for you on the cross, that he gave himself for you? That's what turns self-lovers into those who love others. So here Paul's saying, I see that authentic love. We, go, we can remember going all the way back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, this is how we know that you're loved by God because you've loved him and loved other people. You've stuck with him through adversity. They're going through difficult times. There's been persecution. And here Paul is echoing that again. He says, you already know how to love one another. You know how to do that. Verse 10 that's indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That's their region, basically the Greece region. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So don't stop. Don't think, oh, I loved someone last week. Okay, my job is done. I fulfilled my calling as a follower of Christ. No, he's saying, keep loving one another. That's great that you're loving one another, but, but keep loving one another more and more and more. He's using this language of overflow. We've seen several times in this book. The super abounding, overflowing, don't let it stop 
love. That's, that's what we are to be about. And it reminds me of language that the Apostle John used about Jesus, or really it's Jesus' words himself in the Gospel of John. If you look at the Gospel of John, there's a couple of interactions that are really interesting in chapter 4 and then also in chapter 7 where Jesus says a relationship with God is like having a spring welling up within you. When you come to Jesus and trust him to satisfy your thirst, it's like then having a permanent well that continues to satisfy your thirst. That's what a relationship with Jesus is like. So at one level, we never thirst again. But what that means really is that we keep thirsting and we continue to be satisfied in Jesus. We keep going back to him as that spring of living water welling up within us. So that's the love more and more and more. It's not just bear down and do it on your own strength. It's continue to be filled with God's love and continue to love others out of the overflow of that love. An illustration I like to use a lot is when you're cleaning out a a bucket, you're working in the backyard, you've got some dirt in a bucket, two ways to do it. You can kind of just scrape the dirt out with your hand or you can stick the water hose in there and flush it all out, right? And that's more of the picture we have here. I've got a picture of a bucket being filled up. We have the picture in scripture that our hearts are being flushed with the perfect love of God. And he's pouring his love into us and then it's just overflowing out to others. It's a picture that Jesus gives in John 4 with the woman at the well. It's a picture he gives in John 7 when he tells people to come to him if they're thirsty. There's another reflection of that in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4 says it this way. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Right? So you guys, me, man, we're all messed up. We're all jacked up. We do stupid things. We all sin. He's like, hey, love each other, and that'll make it better. Right? Like, you could be overwhelmed by your sin. I know sometimes I am. Like, I just... I, I want to be better than I am, and I'm frustrated. He says, okay, focus positively on loving one another. Love one another. That'll cover over a multitude of sins. That'll flush everything else out. Take proactive steps to love other people. What, what are you doing to love others? Paul says, hey, I see y'all are doing that. You've learned brotherly love. You've learned how to encourage one another, to stand by one another, to help each other. Keep doing it. Do it more and more and more. The section in 1 Peter is, is fascinating because it reflects some of the vibe that Paul has in 1 Thessalonians. So here in 1 Thessalonians, he's saying, love one another more and more. And then next week, in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 4 and in chapter 5, Paul's going to start talking about the end times. So come back the next couple weeks and you can have all your questions answered about the end times, okay? <laughs> and so here we see Paul tying those things together. Same thing with Peter. Peter ties the end times with loving one another which is confusing to us because most of us think to, to really care about the end times means to have lots of charts and graphs about it, right? Um, but, but he says, no, love one another. If you know the end times are coming, love one another. Don't, don't bury a bus in the backyard and start prepping. Love one another. That, that's what he's saying to do. And I'm, I don't mean to hate on you preppers. That's, we're all going to run to your house, right? But, and then you'll have a chance to love us when we come banging on your door. But really, he's saying, love one another. That's what you should busy yourself with, right? Don't busy yourself with, oh, no, the, the, the world is ending. Busy yourself with loving one another. So Paul's saying that here. Keep loving one another. And then he's going to start talking about the end times. And Peter, 1 Peter 4, he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert of sober mind that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then Peter gives some practical steps. Here, Paul's just kind of saying, yeah, love each other. You know how to do that. I'll, I'll go to Peter to give you some practical steps. This is some practical steps of what love can look like for you, right? 
You're, you're wondering, what does that actually mean, Dave? Does that just mean I do a lot of hearts on social media towards people? What is love, really? First Peter 4 defines it this way. First Peter 4, 8, love each other. That covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4, 9, offer hospitality to one another. That means caring for outsiders, those you wouldn't normally care for. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Peter goes on and says, the servers, the doers should do and serve as if it's the strength God provides with God's supernatural power. And the speakers should speak with God's words. So if you're good at serving, don't serve in your own strength, serve with God's strength. If you're good at speaking, don't speak with your own words, your own strength, but speak God's words. So he's saying, take your gifts and use them to serve and to help other people, offer hospitality, serve people in little ways, making a meal, helping them physically, whatever that might look like. He, he gives us little basic steps of things that we can do, practical things we can do to show love. What are next steps that you could take this week? Who's someone God has put in your life that's on the periphery that you could show practical love to, that you could reflect who Jesus is by taking practical steps and showing them how Jesus loved you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. So if you believe that gospel, if you believe that God loved you while you were yet sinners, then you're going to show love to people that you don't feel like loving, who are yet sinners to you, right? who don't, don't feel all warm and fuzzy to you, people that are going to be hard to love. If we're Christians, God showed love to us and we didn't deserve love, so we're going to show love to other people. We're not going to wait for them to deserve our love. So he says, keep going. Love more. You know how to love, but keep loving. Keep loving others. Um, last week, we talked a lot about purity and morality specifics of morality. It's easy to separate that from love, but I want to make sure we join that back together and say, obeying God's love is a form, God's law is a form of love. Obeying God's law is a form of love. When God says, live this way, he's telling you that because he's a father that loves you. And so the more you submit yourself in obedience to his word, the more you are loving him. Jesus says, if you have my word and you obey it, that's how you love me. So if you want to love God, do what he says. And then that actually shows real practical love to others, right? Last week, Paul says that if we lack self-control and we lack moral purity, we're wronging our brothers and sisters. So when we have purity and we have self-control, that's a form of loving others. And then finally, to use a very 21st century phrase, it's a way to love ourselves, right? I, hate, I feel slimy even saying that. But it's true in this, in this context, so when we obey God, that's a way of loving ourselves. Because when we disobey God, it's, it's, it's suicidal, it's self-destructive. We're, we're tearing ourselves apart. He knows how we're made. He, he wants what's best for you. So align yourselves under his leadership. And as you do that, again, that's a way of loving more. Keep going. Love more and more. The next thing I want us to see so he tells us to work missionally. I'm tying all this under the, the heading of work, kind of our daily lives of work. He has several things he says in a row in this last couple of verses. All those line up under our daily work life. What does your work life look like? And does your work life point people to Jesus? So when I say missionally, what I mean is 
we work in such a way that that points people to Jesus. We're, we're pointing back to the mission of Jesus, a God who came in the world to show us his love. That was God's mission for us, and we were to reflect that mission and how we live. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. That's what the word mission means, right? So God sent Jesus for us, and Jesus sends us for others. And Paul says, how you work, how, your boring daily life is actually a mission. So for those of you that think mission is only being taken to another country to share Jesus in a new and strange place, Paul brings it back home and says, no, you have a mission to be faithful right where he's planted you. So where's God planted you? Look at verse 11 here. It says in verse 11, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So see how he ties that together with how that reflects on outsiders? So those who don't know Jesus are going to see how you live, and you're going to help them to understand Jesus' love for you and for the world. I want to slow down a little bit to look at the beginning of verse 11. There's an interesting play on words there. He says, aspire to live quietly. Aspire. Aspire is a word we often associate with greatness, right? I aspire to greatness. I aspire to um, do great things in life. Another way of translating that is ambition. So he's saying basically, aspire to the greatness of living in a small way, right? Have the big ambition of living a quiet life. Do you see that contrast there? It's a paradox as Christians. We see this in Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be first, then you should be last. If you want to be a leader, then you should serve. Do you see that? And Paul says, just our daily work can embody that. Our daily work can be that kind of life. Aspire to the greatness of living quietly and to mind your own affairs and work with your hands. I love the phrase, mind your own affairs. They made it sound a little softer and nicer here. It's basically mind your business, right? <laughs> mind your own business. Don't be a busybody. Don't be messing around with other people's stuff. You take care of your stuff. Man, Christians, we're, we're bad about this sometimes, right? Like we're bad about posting about everybody else's injustice, but not worrying about our own injustice, right? Like griping about other people and what they've done wrong and not, not worrying about what we've done wrong. He says, mind your own business. Aspire to live a quiet life, to live such a life that when people look at your life, they think there's something different there. I want to know what they believe. That's the kind of life we want to live. Are you living that kind of life? That's what he is calling us to here. He says, aspire to live this kind of quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Um, so all of you that do indoor air-conditioned work, God is saying you're in disobedience and you need to go do manual labor, right? Is that what that means? Work with your hands. Um, that's usually how we take it. It's in the first century, that would have been a phrase to just say work. That's really what he's saying. He's not saying that it's evil if you don't work with your hands. But I do want to point out that there is something beautiful here on the physicality of it. Go all the way back to Genesis where God created us. In Genesis, when God created Adam, we have a picture of a God who stoops into the dirt and he takes dirt, he gets his hands dirty and he sculpts it. And this is in contrast to all the other ancient religions of the world that say that God is too good to be bothered with that sort of thing. Our God gets his hands dirty our God honors manual labor. So we don't want to skip over that too quickly. We want to say, you know what? We have a God 
that says he's like a potter. We have a God who says he's a shepherd. We have a God who says he's like a farmer. And so we want to say Christians always want to honor genuine hard work. I think especially in our culture at this time, we have this kind of crisis. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, We have an economic crisis happening right now where we have elevated college degrees and we don't have enough people doing trades, working with their own hands. And we have to recognize Christians of all people should be the kind of people that honor trade work and honor working with our hands. In the ancient religions, the creation stories would be written in such a fashion to try to put layers between the gods and physical labor. And you know why they did that? That was so that they could justify oppressing people that they wanted to have do physical labor for them so they didn't have to do it, right? So the leaders of the society said, gods and important people like us don't do physical labor. We have the little people do that. In Christianity, Jesus stoops and washes his disciples' feet. So that, those are the kind of people we want to be. We want to be those kinds of people that say, I'm, never, I'm not too good to stoop and to serve others. So in the workplace, right? So let's translate it back to the workplace. Most of us don't have calluses on our hands. Most of us don't work with our hands, okay? What does that look like for you if you're in an air-conditioned office? What does it look like for you to stoop and serve others? What does it look like you to be a leader by serving? What does it look like for you metaphorically to wash other people's feet? Modern hygiene, closed-toed shoes, we don't really need foot washing like they did in the first century, right? It's just not the same physical need that that they uh, had back then. But there are ways that we can serve others. There are ways that we can point to Jesus in the workplace. Are you living that way? One of the great examples of hard workers in the Bible are Daniel and Joseph. Go back and read their stories. Those are great stories. Daniel in the book of Daniel, Joseph in the last like 10 chapters of Genesis. Great stories where you see these guys who went through hard stuff and through stooping and through serving, God elevated them to places of great importance. And then they were a mouthpiece for the Lord. They were able to speak about who God was and testify to his goodness. So here's my thesis. Uh, If you're ever going to speak the words of the gospel, it should be spoken on a platform that you've built by your sweat and your hard work. If you've been faithful at work, then people will want to hear what you have to say. Please don't be the kind of Christian that's always like reading the Bible on work time and always talking but not really doing a good job. You don't want to be that kind of Christian, right? You give Jesus a bad name. Be the kind of Christian that does the best work in the office. And then people are going to want to know who you serve. They're going to want to know about your Savior. I grabbed a picture of people laying bricks here. And that's the picture of working with your own hands. Remember, remember the image that we serve a God who stooped to to play in the dirt and to make us out of that. And he says, you know what? You're not above any of that. Get down on your knees, serve others, wash feet, get your hands dirty, be a farmer, be a shepherd, be a potter like our Lord who serves us. That's the kind of God that we serve. So what are some practical ways that we can live this out? It says, work with your hands as we instructed you, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he's saying there's a a financial part to this. In the first century, often the lower classes would just live off of the, uh, the financial benefits of other people who would kind of take care of them and pay for them, especially sometimes in church settings. 
the, the Christians had this concept of, you know, we are to love one another and care for one another like family. And so if someone's out of work, we'll care for them. So Christianity says, yeah, if someone is hurting, you care for them, orphans, widows, someone's lost their job, someone's sick, we try to heal, we try to help. That is just standard Christianity. But then Paul says, but there's a limit in 2 Thessalonians in the next letter where he says, if someone doesn't work, they shouldn't eat, right? So there are left and right boundaries there where, where one side is Christianity is a faith of charity and helping those who are hurting. So we should just constantly be doing that. We should always be helping hurting people. But then situations arise where the person we're helping, um, maybe we're helping them too much. There's a book I've read called When Helping Hurts, right? There's a way to help someone in which you're just making them dependent on you. And so there's both sides of it. Don't, don't just fall for one or the other, right? Don't say, we just help everybody indiscriminately or the other side. We just never help anyone because they've got to stand on their own. No, Christianity takes people case by case and says, do you need help or not? How can I help you? Okay, I don't want to help you in a way that hurts you and makes you dependent. Because that's kind of what he's describing here. Be self, self-reliant uh, and work with your own hands and don't be dependent on other people so that you don't give a bad reputation for Jesus. Remember specifically, they were in a pressure cooker of persecution. A lot of people have talked about how our culture has moved from being kind of generally friendly towards Christianity to I think the period that we've been growing up in, you would have to say has been neutral to Christianity. Some people are for it, some people are against it. And a lot of people would argue that we're moving into a time period where it will be more negative towards Christianity, but that is coming. I mean, Paul's getting a formula, giving us a formula here for how to live in a culture that's negative towards following Jesus. It says, work hard, mind your own business, don't be reliant on other people, uh, live in such a way that you can give generously and help out others, but don't be living in dependence on other people yourself. So what are practical steps we could take to that? One is to get on a budget. We have to realize that our culture is a consumeristic culture. And so a lot of us are in terrible debt because we've kind of followed that religion of consumerism. And the religion of consumerism says uh, your happiness and your security in life will be satisfied by buying things, right? And uh, we've all been to some degree a part of that religion. And so as Christians, we need to repent from that and say, my salvation is not in buying things. My salvation is in Jesus. So what are some next steps of repentance that you and I could take? of turning from salvation and buying stuff to salvation in Jesus. One is just to begin living on a healthy budget. Um, if you've never done a budget before, the way a budget starts is you start figuring out what you're actually spending. A lot of people don't even know what they're spending. That happens to us. We kind of fall off the wagon, have to do it all over again. You know, life gets crazy. You're like, oh, where's all our money going? You have to audit and sit down and say, where am I spending everything and what am I spending it on? That's a great place to start. We're going to have a class this summer called Financial Peace University. It's very helpful um, to help you work through some of those details. But just figuring out what you're spending is a good place to start, to start moving towards a healthy budget where you spend less than you make and then you have something to give to help other people. And then a the next step beyond that, there's like two or 3% of you that are already on a healthy budget. I would give you a homework assignment, and this is to read the book, God and Money. It's a great book for those who are doing well financially to think about, how can I be strategic about the stewardship God has given me? I have money in the bank. I think I'm spending it pretty well. How can I give generously towards God's work in the world? God and Money. That's a great book I would recommend to you. Um, but finally, know the story of Jesus so that this platform of hard work can be a platform 
by which you share the missional truth of this Jesus who came for us. Know the words, know the story. Learn the Roman road, Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9. I can share those with you again afterwards if you'd like. But begin memorizing the truths of the gospel. We have a God who sent for us. We have a missional God who came after us in love. So work in such a way that you can show that to outsiders. That's what Paul is saying here. I want to wrap up as we think about the authentic living that Paul is calling us to, thinking back again about the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. So by the end of the movie, George Bailey was like, okay, I did have a good life, right? Like maybe, maybe some good things did happen here. What's really ironic is the movie itself, when it first released, didn't really make very much money. And so the big Hollywood executives were thinking, man, Frank Capra, who was the famous movie maker that made it, he's all washed up. We probably don't want to make any more Frank Capra movies, which is ironic because later on that movie won all kinds of Academy Awards. And over time, this movie that originally seemed like a failure has proven to be both one of the most critically acclaimed movies of all time and also one of the most popular movies of all time. And those are, you know, those are two different things, right? Like the critics can hate a movie and you think it's awesome. But this had both sides, right? Both sides agreed that this was a fantastic movie. And those, those humble beginnings remind me of our Savior, who at first sight seemed like a complete failure. They were looking for a great general to come in and, and drive out the Romans with his military might. But you know what Jesus did? He allowed himself to be killed. He allowed himself to be humiliated. He died on a cross. He gave the ultimate sacrifice of his life. And he set the bar for us. That unknown, small, humiliating death sets the bar for us of, of this is what I should be ambitious towards. This is the life I should aspire to. I want to live the kind of life where I give myself in little ways every day following my Savior. Even though he died a humiliating death on the cross to take our place, he rose from the dead three days later. The Father vindicated him. The Father exalted him and said, this is the one you should follow. This is the hero of the universe. He's the one that gives us hope, and he's the one that empowers the simple things in our daily life of loving more and working missionally in our day-to-day -day grind. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you call us to yourself in Jesus, and thank you that you empower the little things in our life of just loving one another in relationship and working hard in such a way that we honor you in our vocation. Help us to grow as followers of Christ. Help us to continue to learn that we can trust you, that you are remaking everything and you are using us in just the day-to-day -day grind of our daily lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to rededicate yourselves to Jesus as the power to love others and as the power to have a work and a vocation that makes a difference in this world. We do that through communion. As we come to the table, we take the bread and the cup, remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. We remember that Jesus gave his life so that we can have life. So we come to the table to symbolize that, say, Jesus, you're my food and my drink. You're my my true sustenance. I want to invite you to make that declaration to pledge yourself to Jesus in that way. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're still questioning where your allegiance lies, we'd encourage you to just pass the bread and the cup 
but to make this a time to pause and consider spiritual things. Make this an opportunity for you to make a decision. What, what is it that you're trusting in? Who are you following? Where does your hope lie? I'd love to talk to you more about what that means. I'd love for this maybe to be a moment where instead of taking the bread and cup for the first time, you receive Jesus spiritually by faith. You say, I see that I need a savior. I see that you died on the cross for my sins. I wanna ask you to save me and come into my life. I wanna invite you to make that decision. Again, talk to me, talk to someone else who maybe has brought you today or a friend that you might have here. We're told that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread with his disciples. He gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the supper, he lifted the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Christians for 2000 years gather around the table to remember Jesus, to remember the life that he gives us. Paul says that as long as we celebrate this in a way where we don't put one of ourselves before someone else, but we recognize that we're all equal at the foot of the cross, then we're proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes. Amen. You can stand uh, and we'll all rotate left to right, uh, clockwise at the left side of your chairs. You can come to the tables. You're welcome to uh, stay for a minute at the table or to take the elements back to your chairs.
Messi. Just a few announcements. If you're new and have not filled out one of these blue Connect cards, you'll see some under the chairs. If you would grab that for us and fill it out, you can drop it in the boxes by the exits. Um, that gives us a way to follow up. We'd love to make sure we don't miss you, give you an email or a phone call in the next couple of weeks. Also, we've got free, yes, free Grace Bible Church mugs for you for filling out that card. So there should be some set up in the back of the room as well. Um, we're going to have a Jordan testimonial lunch. That's next week, right? June 3rd is next week? It's June. Wow. All right. June is next week. June 3rd It's going to be a lunch in the back building following the second service. Come hear how God worked while they were gone. So if you were supporting them, or even if you weren't supporting them, you can come and hear uh, what God did in Jordan through our group there. It was an exciting trip. Um, also, Sunday school class break. Uh, if your kid is sitting on your lap, you know this already, um, but we have a, a four-week break for Sunday school for the elementary and adult and teen. Sunday school classes just for the next four weeks, and then we'll kick it back off on June 24th. Four weeks? Is that right? Four weeks? Okay. Um, adult summer education classes start then the following week, June 10th, we're going to have evening classes. Most of our small groups kind of shut down for the summers as everybody reboots. You know, we have a lot of people, I don't know if you know this, but in our town, a lot of people move out and move in in the summertime. So a lot of transition. Um, and so we're going to have classes on Sunday nights. We'd love to have you come join. Those are in the uh, blue insert. You can see them on one side. And so we'd love to get you to sign up for those and come on Sunday nights for those classes. And then one more thing on the blue insert. I think we've gotten almost all the volunteers we needed for the Impact Club. So give yourselves a hand for that. Thank you very much. I think the main thing they're still lacking are drivers. And so if you can help drive kids, if you have a big vehicle, you could drive a team of kids around the city to different clubs. We can do that at different time slots. Um, let Joey know. Or we might also, we could use extra hosts when we do these public events, like extroverted adults that don't mind meeting people out in the parks. We could use your help for that as well. All right, prayers available after the service. If you'd like someone to pray for you about anything that might be going on, they'll be standing over here uh, on the side of the stage. And I want to send you out just remembering we have a missional God who sent his son for you. He gave his life so that your life could have meaning. So remember that, trust him, and then go love and work in a way that makes an impact on others. God bless you. You may be dismissed. <laughs>